Hebrews 11, 7. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, being moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness which is by faith. And by faith Abraham, when he was called to go into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it, it may be presumptuous for us to ask you for the faith of Abraham or the faith of Noah. But it is not presumptuous because you expect us to respond to your word this way. This is what you expect of us. And while today we focus more on the front end of our faith, the revelation of yourself through your word, we, we still know it demands a response. The whole world, Lord, lies in the clutches of the wicked one. They do not respond to your word. They deny it. In fact, so few Americans now even believe that your word is true, that your word is right. They, they deny it. Culture denies it. Lord, but we, as your people, we embrace it. We accept it. We believe it. Help us, Lord, to believe it more. Help us like... Uh, the man said to you as you were healing his son, I believe, but help my unbelief. Sometimes it's hard to put your faith in something that you cannot see and feel, something you cannot hear and experience. And yet, Lord, we know your word is true. We have confirmation in our hearts by your spirit that this is right. So I pray today, as we dive into this text, that your Holy Spirit would reaffirm in us this truth. For people, Lord, who are struggling to believe, as the audience of this book were struggling to believe, may this sermon shore up whatever areas that they are struggling in, so that they can truly say, I trust God's word. And may we all build our lives on this firm foundation. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Hebrews 11. I should have known it was going to be not the best fit, but my first pastoral position, I should say paid pastoral position, uh, was in a little church in central Pennsylvania. It lasted only 18 months. And like I said, it really wasn't the best fit. Uh, when we candidated, this is before we had children, Becky and I drove into the parking lot of the little church there at the top of Center Hall Mountain. And uh, I, I'll say this, uh, that church had already been through lots of turmoil. We didn't know that. Uh, we were completely unaware that they had been through a church split and they had lost kicked out a pastor and probably should have kicked out another pastor uh, after we left. Uh, in fact, uh, after we left, the assistant pastor who came after me stayed only about two years, and then he's never been in the ministry again. He, he not only left the church, he, he left pastoring completely. It was difficult, and 
And I knew, uh, I should have known rather, right at the beginning, because as I got out of my car, the very first person I met, here's what he said to me. Are you Ford or Chevy? And I said, I'm Matt. <laughs> uh, nice to meet you. I thought uh, maybe Ford and Chevy was, were different people candidating for this position. I wasn't sure exactly what he meant because I had never heard that before. But apparently, again, I didn't know this, and maybe this is the first time you're hearing this, that there are people who are Ford people and there are people who are Chevy people. And never the two shall meet. And I looked at him and said, after he was explaining this to me, I drive a Pontiac. I, I guess that kind of leans me toward the Chevy side. But in my heart, I had no allegiance to Pontiac or Chevy or Ford or any of them. But, but I'll tell you, by not having an opinion, that's kind of off-putting to the people of central Pennsylvania, at least the people that I ran into. Now, their slogan is, you have a friend in Pennsylvania. Key word there is a or one. And I lost him the very first day. The guy who asked me had a definite opinion. I don't remember which side he was on, Ford or Chevy, but he was really on that side. And in some sense, in that little interaction that I had that uh, evening at that church parking lot was a clue. It was just a little clue of the worldview of that church member, at least on some level, because, as I later learned, he wasn't kidding about his question. He really had an opinion of which side of the car was better, and he wanted you to know that. And that's kind of a little bit of his worldview. He looked at life this way. James Sire, in his book, The Universe Next Door, defines worldview in a way that is so confusing. I'm going to read it to you, but it's confusing, okay? It's hard to follow. I guess reading, you have an easier time. But listening later, you'll go, I see what you mean. It's a little confusing. But listen to it anyway, and later you can blame me for reading this, okay? A, a worldview is a commitment. That's pretty easy, a commitment a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story. Okay, let me just stop for a second. It's a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story. Somebody says, this is my story. This is where I'm from. This is who I am. It can be expressed as a story or in a set of presuppositions. And a presupposition is an assumption. And it may be true, it may be partially true, it could be completely false. You, you could have an assumption that you base your whole life on that's completely wrong. Hence the guy who murdered the former prime minister of Japan. He wanted to shoot a religious leader, so he shot the former prime minister, I guess, by mistake. So it's a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart, it can be a story or it can be a, a set of, of presuppositions that we hold, and we don't necessarily even hold them consciously. We can kind of hold them subconsciously. We don't even have to hold them consistently. We can hold them inconsistently. But these form the constitution of what reality is. Now you see why it's hard to listen to. 
I, it's, and I'm going to say it this way. He, here's, what he, here's how he find, finishes. He says, remove it, and everything changes about the way you think about your life. He says it this way. That's how I said it. This is how he says it. It provides a foundation on which you live and move and have your being. I, I rewrote it so it made more sense to me. Let me redefine it this way so it's more simple. A worldview is a framework through which you understand and make life choices. It's how you see your life, which is why it's so important to have a biblical worldview. So regardless of whether you're religious or not, regardless of whether you believe in the creator God, you have a framework. You have a way you come to decisions, the way you understand life, the way you make your choices, and you think about it, the career you're in, the spouse you have or that you're going to have, the, the, the family that you have, the way you rear your children, the way you look at retirement, the house you bought or the house you're planning to buy or want to buy, the car you drive, Chevy or Ford. You, the framework through which you see the world helps form these choices in your heart. So that everything changes about the way you think about life. If you remove God from the equation. And I'm going to say it this way. Everything depends on whether or not you believe in a creator God. About eight years ago, there was a television special, evolutionist Bill Nye, science guy, bow tie man, and creationist Ken Ham debated the origin of life. Nye argued strongly for his position on evolution from a modern science perspective. Ham responded saying, quote, I'm only too willing to admit that my historical science is based on the Bible. It is a witness who was there, who knows everything and told us, and that's from the word of God, end quote. You could not have had two people with as Differing viewpoints from one another than Ham and Nye. And the fundamental reason is because Nye does not believe the Bible is the revealed word of God, and Ham does. And if you think about it, all of that really does explain why a poll released mid-last week, just a few days ago, shows that Americans' belief in the Bible is at an all-time low. I know why that is. The Bible goes against their worldview. Here it is, the way you see life, the way you look at life, if you see it through the Bible, it determines a whole bunch of the ways you form choices in your heart. But if you form choices in your heart that go against the Bible, then you're not going to want to look through the Bible to see life. And because there's so much in our culture today so much so that we call America a post-Christian nation. There's so much in our culture today that goes directly against the word of God. Not even just the big things. Gender issues, that kind of stuff. Even the small, little things. 
There's so much in our culture that goes against the word of God. Americans say, well, the Bible must not be true. It can't be true. If the worldview of Americans, the framework through which they understand and make life choices, begins with the idea that God does not exist, that everything else flows out of that belief. Stop for a moment and really think about what would be true if God did not exist. I think this explains a lot of the anger in our culture. Nature would really truly be self-governing, even life-governing. Man would be the result of millions of mutations over eons of time, not direct creation, what we call fiat creationism. God didn't create a man. He, he actually was not a man. He was some sort of other creature and became a man. There would be no future after death, just the end of life. This means that this life is all that there is. This is it. And if this life is all that there is, then truly life is meaningless. If this is it, life becomes meaningless. There is an overwhelming sense of selfishness that sets in and a lack of a sacrificial attitude. Why would I give up all that there is for someone else when that's all that there is? There is no objective truth. There are no objective morals. And there's no real justice. And this is where millions of people live every day. This is where millions of Americans live every day. This is no wonder America has a drug problem. Throw alcoholism in there. No wonder. If I believed that there wasn't anything after this life, that if I died this afternoon, I was just dead and gone and that's it, I wouldn't be here. Not right now. I wouldn't be here. Not on a day like today. I'd be golfing or something else. Trying to grab as much of this life as I can because this is all that there is. Friends, that's, that's nihilism. Sorry for the big word. Some people say nihilism. Life is meaningless. It's no wonder we have a breakdown in society with people just going into schools and shooting innocent children. No wonder people butcher their own bodies by all sorts of means. Every week, there's somebody who's done enough plastic surgery that they look like Barbie, that it ends up on the, well, some of the newspapers I read. <laughs> and I read some weird stuff, so. People take all these surgeries to change their body shape so that they look like some character. I, I've read some weird stuff just in the last week of people wanting to marry, a girl wants to marry a toy airplane. And I'm not making that up. I wish I were. Just weird stuff. That's what nihilism is. Just life is meaningless. What's the point? But there is a creator God. And he has revealed himself. That's my worldview. This is where I start. We took two sermons to get just to the idea that there is a creator God, 
but now we're going to add the second line. So if you're creating worldview, this is number one, there is a creator God, that's my first idea. My It's not in your notes. The second idea is he has revealed himself. That's my worldview. That is what I think is the foundation of a true biblical worldview. And so if you think about this, then number one, God's revelation is self-revelatory. God is revealing himself. His revelation to Noah and Abraham involved his own actions. Look at verse 7 again. By faith Noah, being warned of God. By faith Abraham, verse 8, when he was called to go. And in Noah's case, the self-revelatory nature of God's words was what he was about to do. A universal flood. God was about to destroy humanity because of the greatness of its depravity. I don't know that Noah even knew that. There's no indication Noah knew or was fully aware of the violence that had taken over the world at his day. He didn't fully understand that God was ready to destroy all of humanity except those few on the ark. He didn't know. He just knew God said it's going to rain and you need to build a boat. His knowledge, I think, may have been pretty limited. But here's what it was. God says, this is what I'm going to do. In Abraham's case, he's going to become the father of many nations. God is preparing, in Abraham's case, an offspring of people for himself, the Hebrews. And, and through these people, through the offspring of Abraham, one Jesus would come the salvation of many. See, this is what God was doing. See, what God is doing in his revelation is saying, this is who I am. In fact, he doesn't even take time or bother to prove that he is. He just says, this is who I am. And he says, I'm here. In my written words, I'm here. And so God reveals himself. And his revelation involved his own actions. And so letter B, consequently, the preacher here issues or uses terms like warning and calling. God is pulling at the levers of human history. Think about it. If there's no flood, a lot of things have to change. The universal flood changed the entire course of the human race because it wiped from the earth an entire line of DNA of humanity. The entire line of Cain is gone. There are some people who speculate because they read the Bible kind of metaphorically, or they would say spiritually, that the Sethites were so good and the Cainites were so bad that the only way that real badness got post-flood was that the, uh, the sons of Noah had married daughters of Cain or descendants from Cain. So the girls were the Cainites. They brought in all the bad into the next culture. But that doesn't explain Noah getting drunk, right? So really what happens is God just kind of wipes the earth free of an entire line of DNA of humanity, gone. It reset the game board, as it were. Here we have now a renewed people with a renewed purpose, multiply and replenish the earth. If you think about God pulling at the levers of human history, Abraham's journey begins a migration that's going to change the entire course of the ancient Near East. 
Abraham was the one first called the Hebrew or the one who crosses over. It's kind of a sense of his nomadic lifestyle. He is the first of many. And, and the place that God gave him, it says they would after receive for an inheritance, that place of Canaan will be radically changed because of this. We're still in conflict in our present day because Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees and went five or six hundred miles away. We're still in conflict thousands of years later over this very thing. And so you think about this. What God is doing, he's actually through Noah and through Abraham, he's, he's shaping his world that he made. And, th- and though the emphasis is on man's response to God in the text, the preacher is trying to get a response. Here are the witnesses showing how they, through their faith, responded to God's word. I think the underlying point is God's initial action. This is what God did first. He warns Noah, this is what I'm going to do. He calls Abraham to set in motion what he's going to do, his grand scheme. And all of this tells me what God is really saying in his word is, this is who I am. And it begs the question then, what do you know about this God? What do you know about him? And the only way to know him is by studying his word. One false teacher said the greatest spiritual experience he ever had was when he was at a U2 concert listening to Under the Joshua Tree. Friends, that's not the greatest experience I've ever had. The greatest experience I ever had was when somebody took a Bible and pointed me to Jesus Christ. And every great experience of my life, every single one that is spiritual, began that same way, through God's word. So I study it. This is why you must memorize it. This is why we do Kids for Truth here. We want the children memorizing God's words. This is so important. Some of you may have noticed that sometimes when I'm reading this text, I'm I'm not reading it, I'm quoting it. I know Hebrews 11 pretty well. Because when I was in sixth grade, my mother taught my Sunday school class. She really didn't know a lot, I guess, about how to teach Sunday school. So one of the things she did was we all had to memorize whatever passage she was going over. And I don't know, she did months in Hebrews 11. So we memorized Hebrews 11. And so even today, it's still in my mind. What what a great gift. This is why we must learn from it. It's not a dead, lifeless book. As the writer has already said, it is alive and powerful and sharper than any sword man can make. This is why in reading it, I'm knowing him greater with more intimacy, coming closer and closer to God. This is why it's so crucial that you come to preaching. That you hear it being taught and preached. That your mind doesn't wander. That you discipline yourself to listen. That you actually bring your children to preaching. I told you the church in Pennsylvania was 
a little off. <laughs> I say that affectionately. It was weird. They, they asked me, because I was the song leader at the same time as doing other things, do you know the birthday song? I said, sure, happy birthday to you. Yeah, I got that. They didn't sing it, happy birthday to you, like we do. They say completely different, happy birthday. And they knew it. And when they said, do you know it? I said, yes. They were all thought of, I saw them snickering to each other. I thought, I don't know what that means. But when I got up and they started singing happy birthday to you, God's blessings on you or something or other, I, I'm now waving my arms and I have no idea. And the whole church is laughing. That's what you do to the guy who just arrived. You know, Let's make public spectacle of him. They're, they're a weird, weird bunch. But the pastor who was there, he, he was a little off too. And after they fired him for cause, he ended up at a church down here in North Carolina. He was on the front of their website with a referee jersey on. And in front of him, here's what it said on the website. Sunday is now fun day. Well, that's a good lesson to teach children. No, it's the Lord's day. I, don't, I, I like humor and fun more than most. But this is the Lord's day. Sometimes you're going to come to church and you're going to be a little bored. Sometimes you're going to sit in a service and you're going to be a little tired. And the sermon is going to be a little dry. And, and it may be on subject matters that aren't very exciting to you or your family or your children or whatever. And I'm, and I'm sorry for that. But this is what God said. There are places in Scripture I blush now to read. There, there are some places in the Old Testament that I'm not sure how I'm ever going to preach through. You know, especially if you read those in modern translation. The King James does a really good job of making it just seem all like it's bad. You know it's bad, but it doesn't seem that bad. And then you read it in a real modern translation and go, what? I, I know it can be difficult. But, but, but this is what shapes life. This is the knife that carves away at you and cuts off the parts that shouldn't be there. And we all need it. Now, not only is God's revelation self-revelatory, this is number two then, it sometimes contradicts what is seemingly obvious. Now, Sometimes God's revelation concerns unexperienced things. You can look again at verse 7. Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet. You kind of go back to verse 1, right? Faith is, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen, right? Not seen yet. He moved with fear. It, it, sometimes, I'm just going to be honest with you here. Sometimes we like to say faith and God's word and all of this is just obvious and easy. And it is not. If you would like me to prove to you outside of scripture everything that I'm saying, I will not and cannot. There are people who take approach to apologetics, kind of the subject I'm dealing with in biblical worldviews. They, they take the approach to apologetics and they say, well, you know, um, the Bible is good, but we need evidence. Josh McDowell wrote a book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. We call them evidentiary apologetics. 
Then there are people, E.J. Carnell comes to mind. He was a professor in the last century over in Fuller Seminary in Southern California. He had something called verificationalism. Doesn't that sound like a big, long word? It just means you trust but verify. So, so it's good to know the word of God, but you, i got to verify it somehow. Again, maybe eating away a little bit. And then there was Norman Geisler. Some of you know that name. He had this idea of classic apologetics where it's just logic. And he almost made logic like uh, you know, father, son, and spirit, and logic. And logic was almost within the Trinity. God created logic. God is logic and all of this. And, and if you read his systematic theology, he, he kind of makes it all about logic. And, and classic apologetics, I can prove to you, if you're just a reasoning person, that this is true. And I'm looking at all of that, and I'm saying, all of, I, I appreciate where you're coming from. I, I'm glad there was a Muslim philosopher who had the idea that if there is no God, you know, then there are no objective morals. And I'm glad he, as an unbeliever, came to that view. But I don't need that philosophy to prove that God exists. Because I start and end at one place. There is a creator God, and he has revealed himself in his word. And you say, can you prove it? And I'm going to say, not always. Again, I'm just being honest here. If that throws you for a big loop, I'm sorry. I can't always prove it. And, and, I, and I feel I'm being cheated if a preacher stands up and says, yes, I can, and then uses all these philosophical ideas to try to prove his point. Because then what you end up having is philosophers who are smarter. And then my faith ends up being in philosophy, not in the word of God. I'm just going to be truthful with you. Revelation sometimes contradicts things which are seemingly obvious. It deals with things not seen as yet, which requires humility in receiving it. Because we don't know everything. And my friends, that's part of the problem with people. I mean, here's the CEO of BlackBerry sitting in the back of a limousine in New York City. I think it was New York City. And he's looking over the brand new Black... Do you all remember what a... Some of you are thinking, I don't have no idea what you're talking about. You're thinking like Blackberries that you eat. No, no. A Blackberry telephone. And I remember when I was younger, lusting for a Blackberry telephone. And when I got my first Blackberry, oh, it had that little dial on the side and you could scroll with that dial. I miss that. You get this horrible thumb pain, but it was fun. And then you had all the little digits on there. It wasn't on a screen. And actually, it was easier, I think, because they were tactile. But the guy's sitting there, and meanwhile, Steve Jobs is giving his presentation on Apple, and he comes out with the first iPhone, and here's the guy who thought he knew everything in the back of his limousine, and he gets, he gets on his little brand-new BlackBerry and calls everybody and says, we can't even come out with this. Everything gets shelved. This is where we're headed. And then, of course, everybody came out with their own version of the iPhone. And that's where we're at. And I'm looking at every new iPhone. It's just a better camera. And why would I get one, right? I mean, it's a telephone. And they haven't had any advancements, really, for a long, long time. And you go, well, what's the next one going to be? I have no idea. But somebody will come out with one. I don't know everything. You don't know everything. I just read this week. There, there are people now who are saying Darwin was all wrong that the, peop the species who survive are not the strongest, but the weakest. And it's a really interesting article. The weakest actually are the ones surviving, not the strongest. 
And we have to rethink Darwinism because of this. And, and these are people who do not believe God's word. And I'm just sitting there going, you can do this all day. I have the truth. I've got it right here. Yes, it, it contradicts everything you may observe in life. It may contradict that, but that's okay because I have humility to say I don't know everything and I'm never going to know everything. It, it concerns unexperienced things. It sometimes concerns unknowable things. There are things I cannot know. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go into a place which he should after receive for inheritance, he obeyed and he went out even though it wasn't on his GPS. That's what it says, just put it in the super modern translation. It may require you to go out not knowing whither you go. In Abraham's case, he traveled hundreds of miles away from home, a time when travel and life was hard, it was dangerous, you died on trips. Okay, honey, where are we going for summer vacation this year? I don't know, we lost three of the kids last year, you know, it's dangerous, you know, or... Uh, we, we lost grandma. In, in Abraham's case, uh, we lost dad on the trip, right? Tara. Is, he, is it Tara? Yeah, Tara. He dies halfway there. I mean, it's, it, travel was hard. He, he, his inherited land is occupied. He shows up and, he's, and God says, okay, walk up and down the land. Walk the length of it. Walk the breadth of it. He's walking all over this land. And do you think it's just all big empty land? Is it just, is it just uh, mosquitoes and uh, whatever, uh, porcupines, all the things you ran into in Maine, porcupines and mosquitoes? Is that what it is? No. There are people there. The Hittites are there. The Jebusites are there. The Gergesites. I love that name, the Gergesites. All these people groups are there, and they're powerful and strong. It's occupied. But he, he's told to go. He's unaware of the directions at the outset of his journey. He doesn't even know where he's going, which requires, in, in Noah's case, some humility, but in Abraham's case, a little bit of dependence. Okay, God, I, I just need you every morning when I wake up to go, where do I point my camel next? Where am I going? But he literally went out because he literally obeyed. And I guess if, if you're willing to say, I want to know God better through his word, then I guess you have to decide objectively if you're going to listen to God or not through his word. It, it, is scripture the center of your life? Answer that question in your heart right now. Is it the center of your life? Is this really what you believe? With all your heart. It doesn't mean you understand every part of it. Nobody does. Not even the best Bible teachers. It's not that you understand every part of it, but do you really, truly, in your heart, believe it? If you don't expect Satan to attack right there, that's the weak spot. That's the hole in your armor. That's the breach in the wall. Do you believe it with all your heart? Do you trust the Lord to guide your life through it? I, I remember reading the story a lady put online about her own parenting style. And she said, God does not expect us to discipline our children. 
And she went on and on about how God does not expect us to discipline our children. I'm thinking of Bible verse after Bible verse. All those verses have been misinterpreted, she tried to say. And it was only because, and you could tell by the end, she just didn't want to do it. Now, you don't have a choice, parents. If you're going to follow God's word, you need to discipline your children. You need to disciple them. Is this central to your family's life? Remember, a biblical worldview is the way you see life and make choices, right? It's how you understand this world and then make choices. Do your children see those choices in you? They're not necessarily grasping the philosophy behind it, but do they see those choices in your family because they know that God's word is central to your life? That I'm going to really, truly base what I do and live off of these words. Is that central? Parents, are your children trusting God's word because they see you trust God's word? That when difficult times come in your life, you worry and fret and wring your hands, and oh no, woe is me, woe is us, we're in trouble now, while your children are basically doing the same thing as, as little people, but you look at their problems, and those aren't real problems. Get over it, walk it off, it's fine, please, you're in third grade, you're in first grade, I'm sorry Johnny didn't share his ball with you, I'm sorry Timmy stepped on your peanut butter jelly sandwich, it's okay, get over it, we got bigger problems here. Well, to them, that's the big problem, right? And they're watching you, instead of trusting God, worrying. No wonder they're doing the same. You see, if God's revelation is self-revelatory, and it doesn't necessarily fit with what is obvious, then what, then what, what, we, what we see now, then, is a requirement and I'm going to put that requirement on hold for one for two weeks. I'm putting it on hold. But the requirement is faith. That's the requirement. And I'm going to really hammer this home in a couple of weeks. But I want to end this by coming to a third idea. It's not only revelatory. God's word is not only contradicting what is seemingly obvious but it's always personal. God spoke to individuals. Noah was, and this being warned of God, that's one word in Greek. He was warned of God. It literally was an oracle from God. He wasn't warned and he thought it was God. The writer's not saying he, he, he said, well, I hear this voice or I had this dream. No, he says, God warned him. And the implication in verse 8 is the same. God called Abraham to go. It was personal. It was, it was individual. It wasn't this kind of general statement. 
God didn't tell the whole world a flood was coming. In fact, from, from 1 Peter, we get the sense that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, that maybe over the years it took Noah to build the boat, maybe Noah was declaring, hey, this is coming. But we don't know that for sure. Maybe God didn't tell anybody. He just, in their, in their evil, they wouldn't have listened anyway. And if he did preach, nobody listened to him except his own family. There were only a few people on that boat. So we don't really know for sure how much people knew, but we know this, God warned one man. It was personal to Noah. You better build a boat. You better build it right now. Because there are waters coming, and you're going to die if you don't. I'm going to move with fear. God called Abraham. You must do this. Abraham's entire lineage. And he has no children, but his entire lineage. Think of the Abrahamic covenant. Look up into the sky. You see all the stars. Your family will number more than the stars of heaven, which in Kerry may not seem like much because of light pollution, but you get out in the middle of nowhere sometime, and then you look on the heavens in a clear night and see what you can see. And it's pretty amazing. And maybe because the stars are so far away, that light takes time to travel here. The stars were fewer in number then. What you could see, there's all sorts of ways of scientists have kind of looked at this. Maybe Abraham couldn't see as many stars as we can see now. Still was a bunch of stars. Oh, and by the way, it's more than the sands on the seashore. Innumerable, the writer says. His entire lineage, including Messiah, depend on Abraham's obedience. It's personal. It's personal to Noah. It's personal to Abraham. It's personal to you. It's personal. The preacher, this is what he says. It, it, just for a moment, let's just get this context in our mind. Go back to chapter 1, way back at the very beginning, right at the beginning of this book. God in various times and in various ways, sundry times, diverse manners, various times, various ways. In time past, spoke to the prophets, by, spoke to the fathers by the prophets. He has, in these last days, spoken to who? To us. It's personal. He revealed himself to me. He has revealed himself to you. It's personal. This is what scripture does. Yes, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. And night unto night shows forth knowledge and there is no language where that voice cannot be heard. People can step out of their porches at night in a place where no scripture has ever been taught and they can see the handiwork of God and they can know there is a God that exists. That's general revelation. That's general and it's non-specific. But friends, we have something better than that. We have the specific revelation of God where he speaks directly to me. This is what I love about Howard Hendricks, Bible teacher from the last century. That sounds so long ago, but it really wasn't that long ago. He taught at Dallas Seminary. He said, this is what the Bible means to me. Here's what I get out of it. All of his Bible study from all the years of study, 
in his undergraduate degree, in his master's degree, in his doctoral degree, and all the years of then teaching, like 50 years, here's basically what he said. In Scripture, I have examples that I can follow. And boy, you can find them everywhere, right? The witnesses here in Hebrews 11, the examples of just in the New Testament of Paul and Peter. There are examples everywhere that we can follow. That's what Scripture means to Howard Hendricks. It's what it means to me. He says, I can find your sins to avoid, moral failings to avoid, sins of the tongue to avoid, selfishness and pride. I can see it through Scripture and say, I don't want to do that. But avoid those sins. He says, there are promises I can claim that everywhere I go, Jesus promises to be with me. That when I gather with others, Jesus is in our midst. He's here now because he promises to be. That blessings come through obedience. That we have hope in the Lord's return. The promises we can just claim for ourselves. He says, there are prayers I can repeat. I can pray the prayers of other men through scripture. The prayers of David. The prayers of Samuel. The prayers of Paul. He says, there are commands I have to obey. I, I'm told I have to gather a, as a church. I don't know what you think about the pandemic, but I'm going to tell you in my line of work, what I found to be true was, is that people got the sense that if they watch it at home online, I understand if you're sick or traveling, that's not what I'm talking about. But if you just sit at home and watch TV on your TV or your, or your computer online, that's church. That's not church. And the Bible tells me that. Do not forsake the assembly of yourselves together. Don't do it. It's a command. How to forgive others. A condition to meet. Effective prayer. There are these conditions I have to meet. Verses I can memorize. I, you all ought to know verses about salvation, verses about peace and how to have peace in your heart, verses about God's will, verses about different aspects of life. They ought to saturate your mind. Errors to mark. How do I know what a false teacher is? How do I identify a false doctrine? How do I recognize a spiritual lie? And challenges to face. When I go through trials... I read through his word how other people face those trials, and it helps me. When I read about Job, it helps me. I see what he went through, and he didn't have scripture like this to read. We're blessed, we do. When I'm, my life's in pain, my heart is broken, and I can go to scripture, and I can overcome those challenges. Because of the word of God. This is how important it is, folks. It, it is the way I see life. And it forms the basis of every decision I make. Or it should. I think I've told you this story before. I'm sure I have. 100% sure. During the Gulf War, Saddam Hussein's army they were well-trained troops, powerful troops, the Republican Guard. When we went to Saudi Arabia, I, we were told privately, expect to be there four years, expect about a third of you not to make it home. That's because the last war we'd been in was Vietnam. They, they had no idea how it was going to go. I'm going to tell you, that was pretty sobering. 
And when we got into the middle of real battle, was it February? You know, I, I didn't get an announcement. We didn't get the news, you know. It was announced over here, I think it was sometime in February, when we finally started launching those missiles from the boats. I, I knew we were at war because uh, in the middle of the night, rumbling as tanks were going by, all, all night long, morning long, tanks are going by, and Apache helicopters are flying overhead, Cobras and Apaches, and, you know, something's happening. It's pretty cool. But do you know what really was one of the big difference makers? We had night vision goggles. How many of you have ever put a night vision goggle on your head? Raise your hand. How many of you have done that? Is, is it amazing? I mean, it's, it's nearly pitch black. And you go put that thing on your and then it's all in grayscale green. But you can see. It's amazing. I can see. It's not like day, but it's can't see, see, can't see, see. Can't. Can. Well, imagine you're out there in the middle of the night. You got your, your what, you're out on watch. You got your Soviet-made rifle. You're an Iraqi soldier. You got your Soviet-made rifle. You're standing there. Bing! Buddy falls over. That's weird. Didn't see that coming. Bing! Another buddy falls over. Maybe I should hide, you know, duck behind something. See, because there's another army out there, they can see you and you can't see them. That's not even fair. That's not even gentlemanly. It's kind of what war is, right? We had night vision goggles. They didn't. And I have in my hand the spiritual night vision goggles that helps me to see what I can't see without it. Can't see? See. Can't see? See. Can't see. Can. And so I open it up to Proverbs and I learn all about how I am as a person, how my children are, how my wife is, how my parents are, how my... My grandparents were, how my great-grandchildren are going to be someday. I learn all about that in Proverbs because Proverbs teaches me all about people. Or I, or I open it up to the Psalms and I, it teaches me all about worship and about heart and about how I feel on the inside and feelings. It's all feelings. Uh, it's, it's, it's the women's section of the Bible, right? It's feelings. It's all mushy and feelings. And Of course, David wrote it, but anyway, maybe David's wise, one of them, you know. Honey, you need to write about the shepherd thing. Okay, got it. And then I read uh, for all the intellectuals, I read Romans because it's a, a, a kind of a legal explanation of the legal aspects of God's righteousness and, and uh, it's, it's more complicated. And Oh, it's all here. And if I just look at it, then I can see. I'm no longer blind. And in the darkness of our world, which is dark, dark, dark black, a light shines forth. And I can see God. And he's the one shining the light. 
and I can see the world, and I can see people, and I can see the answers to life. I can see it all. Because there is a creator God, and he has revealed himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. We didn't cover everything in this two verses. We saved some of it for later. But for what we covered, Lord, help us all to respond in our hearts right now. To respond. Because that's what you require. Before I finish my prayer, don't be blind. Don't be blind to what God is doing or what God will do. Rather, search his word. How many of you in your heart say, Pastor, I haven't taken the study, the memorizing, the learning of God's word. I haven't taken it seriously enough. I just haven't done it. Now, you, you know in your heart whether that's true or not. And I know that's not all of you. I know that's only going to be some of you. But I'm asking you to really evaluate yourself. And then as you're doing that, for those of you who have taken it seriously, how have you responded to what you've learned? You say, Pastor, I'm only 13 years old. Yeah. How did you respond to it? I'm only 17 years old. Yeah, how did you respond to it? Maybe your teachers aren't even teaching the truth to you. Are you going to listen to what the world says or to what God says? Maybe God is speaking to your heart right now and indicating a deficiency here. And if that's true, I'd like to pray for you. Anybody say, Pastor, the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to me. Yes, sir. Just raise your hand. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes. I'll pray for you. Who else? Pastor, pray for me. I just haven't been committed to this like I should have. Yes. I'll pray for you. Yes. That's a blessing. Whole family raised their hand. And that's a life change. That's a family change right there. Who else, Pastor, pray for me? It means so much. Lord, please, continue using these words long after we're gone. Your words, not mine. My words are meaningless. And whatever contradicts what's here in this book, Strike it from our hearts. But whatever is true to the book, engrave it on our hearts so that we can be different. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. And while we are, uh, the, the pianist will play. And as she's playing, just go to the Lord. Commit yourself to his word again as she plays. <laughs>